Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Julia Ozari. I am an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner. I'm a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University and a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. Today, we're happy to welcome Hans Noel to the show. Hans is an associate professor of government at Georgetown University, and he's the author of numerous books and articles about political parties, including his 2013 book, Political Ideologies and Political Parties in America. He's also a co-author of The Party Decides, which was both pathbreaking and at times uh, controversial as a kind of key text about the role of party leaders and elites in presidential nominations. Welcome to the show, Hans. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. So I want to kick us off by asking you about your your thinking about U.S. political parties. Your book really made a great splash um, when it came out almost 10 years ago. And so I'm curious if, I mean, if you could briefly kind of summarize your findings to our listeners and also tell us how your thinking about U.S. political parties has changed since it came out in 2013. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the book, book was really my effort to try to figure out why people have the allies that they have, why the Republican Party is made up of the people that are in the Republican Party and the types of people that are in the Democratic Party are the ones that are in the Democratic Party. And um, without going sort of too deep into all of the reasons why I thought that was an interesting question, um, it did seem like it wasn't it wasn't clear why voters would align that way, except for the fact that parties were telling them that way to, to line up the way that they do. But it wasn't clear why parties would line up that way, except that they were trying to win over the votes of voters. And so I was really interested in trying to think about why, you know, liberalism and conservatism mean the things that they mean. And I looked to um, political thinkers, writers in magazines and newspapers, editorials, op-eds and the like, and tried to figure out what the ideological space structure of their opinions uh, were. And then I argue in the book that that space, that what does it mean to be liberal and conservative that is shaped by people who are thinking through what it should mean to be liberal or conservative, that ends up um, forming sort of some kind of like sort of proto-coalition, some sort of smaller cluster of, of uh, ideas that come together, and that those uh, proto-coalitions are sort of hard for the parties to resist. So if there's a hard liberal block and a big conservative block, then odds are that the parties are going to, to gravitate around those. And as had happened uh, in the middle of the last uh, century, if what it means to be liberal and conservative change, then the parties are going to have to change to respond to that. So as opposing um, racial integration became more important to conservatism and as uh, favoring uh, desegregation became more important to liberalism, then the Democratic and Republican parties had to follow along to the alignment that we have now. So that's what the book kind of argues. And it ends with sort of two parties that are well-defined and coherent as a liberal party and a conservative party. And we have red and blue America. And since then, since, you know, we've, we've seen elections that have unfolded since the book came out. And one of the things that I think we've seen is an increased talk about polarization, but also a better understanding that it's not just polarization, right? That there is something about what it means to be conservative and Republican. That's not just 
Burkean conservative ideologically coherent thoughts, but rather um, you know the, the embrace of some kind of America first and maybe even some anti-democratic elements. But that's not being echoed by the shift to take up the things that, that the Republican Party maybe is dropping on the Democratic side. And so what I'm sort of seeing or thinking about now is that the, the way in which you know those those proto coalitions, which I kind of just treated as well, that's that's really all there is, are really only the the core part or the rump part of what the party wants. And there's a lot of room to maneuver on top of that. And maybe that room to maneuver even um, affects the way that ideologies evolve and, and change their, their views. So there's a lot more, more, a lot more movement, a lot more dynamic still going on than I thought at the time. I thought we were kind of at this, I didn't think end of history point, but at this like almost stable position and it didn't last for very long. Yeah, that's really interesting. It is sort of resonates with with what Lee writes in his book about the factions being sort of crystallized specifically in Congress, but in other elements of American politics, too. Like there's not there's not a movement. There's not a lot of Lee talks a lot about fluid coalitions. Um, and we don't see a lot of that. But at the same time, we do see a certain kind of ideological fluidity. I have so much to say, but I'm going to let James ask a question. Well, thank you. And, and Hans, thanks for, for joining us. I'm a big fan. I, re- I don't know if you recall, but I, we had lunch uh, one day many, many, many moons ago there in uh, D.C. It was wonderful to pick your brain. Um, you know, I come at this from a, a unique perspective, as you know, as a kind of a scholar practitioner, and I'm constantly grappling with how the way we think about our politics distorts those politics. And I want to pick up where you left off and the kind of the, where you referred to the nuances in what it means to be conservative or what conservatism means. And I would suggest picking up on that, that they're not just nuances, they're flat out disagreements, right? You know, I've worked in my career for Jeff Sessions, Pat Toomey and Mike Lee, all three very conservative individuals who disagree probably very vehemently and deeply on really important issues like immigration, right? like the law, uh, like healthcare, tax policy, you can go on down the line. And so I guess given that and given my experience and given what I see on the front pages of every newspaper these days, whenever you pick them up and read about disagreements within the Democratic Party and moderates and progressives, is like, I wanted to ask you, where does our thinking fall short? Like, what are we missing about parties? You know, are we making a mistake, for instance, in conflating liberal and the Democratic Party, liberalism and progressivism and conservatism and the Republican Party? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of overlap there, but it hides or it kind of masks these these intra-party divisions, this ideological fluidity. And so we have this view of polarization when, so far as I can tell, the parties don't really agree with one another internally on pretty much anything. And that's one of the reasons why we're not seeing a lot of like progress in legislating, regardless of who's in control. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I spent a good bit of time in, in both the book and, you know, in other places discussing this about trying to disentangle uh, the way we talk about ideology versus party. They're not the same thing. And I think most political scientists would say, yeah, they're not they're the same thing. But then we fall back on, well, you know, how democratic the vote is in a district will tell us how liberal that district is. And, you know, it might be like a rough proxy in some cases, but it's really just not the same thing. Um, at the same time, I do think it's true that both parties are more internally homogenous and, and consistent today 
than they were 60 or 70 years ago. I mean, the divides that we're talking about in the Democratic Party, for instance, um, are nothing like the divides between Northern and Southern Democrats over segregation. But there are still lots of different directions. Some of them are, I think, you know, subtle and about um, the approach that you want to take. So everybody thinks it's in the Democratic Party. Everybody would say we should you know, do what we can to help the, the less well off and government should step in to, to, help, to do things about that. But what is the right thing and how far do you really need to go and how big of a change is necessary, especially given the fact that you know we might have a lot of voters who don't want that. But then there are true disagreements, even on that issue and on a lot of others. I think the um, the most interesting thing right now is the way that the Republican Party has shifted in response to, to Donald Trump's presence. I've got a paper um, in the APSR with Dan Hopkins where we asked people who were activists, we asked them who's more liberal or conservative, and we gave them pairs of senators. Um, and then one of the things we find is that based on that, we can sort of back out how liberal or conservative are respondents who are sort of political activists, what they think, they think that people like Mike Lee and and Ben Sass and some very conservative figures are basically middle of the road moderates. And why do they think that? Well, we think it's because those figures have opposed Donald Trump. And so Trump has now redefined, at least for these activists, what it means to be conservative. And so in some sense, there's a fight over what the language, what the term means, right? And so, you know, there is a coherent there, that's the, what does the Republican Party stands for, and it is going to at least self-identify as caring about conservatism, and then if what that changes, changes, and the, the party itself is going to change too. But at the same time, we know that those people are not moderates, right? We know their policy positions, they would tell us that they're not moderates. In fact, uh, we got some pushback from a member of the Senate that we viewed as very moderate, precisely because they didn't think that they were so moderate. And that will, you know, that rea- that other reality is also there. And there's like a contestation of what the word means, but then completely separate of that is just like a contestation of what the direction of the of the party and, and the coalition will go. And sometimes you don't need to win the fight over what it means to be conservative to, to win the policy fight. So I have, again, just kind of so many, um, so many questions. I'm going to, here, here is my game plan for us. I'm going to ask sort of a two-parter and then I'll let James talk. And then I want to bring it, bring it home with some 2024 speculation. But I have a couple of, of questions and I, I'm trying to think how to merge them into one, but I think I'm just going to ask them separately. One is, is I wonder how much you've encountered or how you respond to some critique. There's sort of this, you, you describe liberalism and conservatism as being very much rooted in the racial conflicts of the the, the 60s, essentially. Um, Liberalism, as you described, is sort of this desegregation viewpoint that then becomes merged with other um, larger government philosophies and then conservatism kind of the opposite. So I I wonder, there's a number of, of perspectives in the kind of race and politics literature that actually critique liberalism for this reason. I wonder if you've come across this very kind of different traditions. Um, on the one hand, someone uh, like LaFleur Stevens Dugan, whose book is, is a highly empirical work of political behavior. And she kind of says there is currently no racially, truly racially liberal party in the United States. And, she, and her sort of analysis is of the ways in which Democratic and Republican candidates both distance themselves from African-American voters and interests. And then on the kind of other end of the spectrum, a more sort of critical and historical approach, 
is uh, the work of Daniel Hosang. I'm now paranoid. I don't have this book in front of me that I've gotten part or all of his name wrong, but some really fascinating work that also sort of critiques the ways in which he, so the puzzle that he looks at of California, um, how is this super liberal state keep having these extremely conservative referendum outcomes when it comes to, to race? And I think that's a really interesting critique. And I wonder if, if you've been confronted by those perspectives in a, in a review or a roundtable and how you might respond to that. Is this just semantic or do you see a real kind of tension in how we understand those perspectives? And then I want to ask you about party asymmetry, but I'm going to leave it there. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think partly what that is, is, is the semantic difference in that what I, what I'm thinking about what it means what does it mean to be liberal? What does it mean to be conservative? I really am not trying to tie it to, you know, the liberal tradition that we might trace back to political thinkers um, in the you know Enlightenment period and on, whatever, like that kind of that kind of thinking. Um, I think it has a has a, a root there, but um, it's not just that. And in fact, for, if that's the tradition that we're thinking about, I think it's not crazy to suggest that both liberalism and conservatism in the United States both draw a lot on that particular tradition. Um, and so it's not so much that that kind of liberalism uh, couldn't have a not racially liberal component to it. But it's a fair question to say, well, okay, so this thing, whatever it is, this, this ideological core of modern American liberalism that is on the, the left and uh, it sort of anchors the Democratic Party, you know, is it really racially liberal enough, which I think is the criticism that, you know, the LaForce Davis Dugan argument would make. And I, I mean, I think it'd be, it's totally reasonable to say it's not liberal enough, or at least it's not progressive enough on race. But it's still the case that if there are questions about how should we react to the events of the of 2020 and um, uh, this in the summer, and how should we think about policing and, and the like, to the extent that that's politicized, which is a lot, it's the the liberal side that is um, going to take the or lean towards the more progressive, liberal, racially progressive position. They just don't go as far as perhaps people who spend a lot of time thinking about the actual implications of, of the policy would uh, would like them to. But it's not it's not certainly not the position that Republicans and conservatives are taking. So I think that, um, you know, I don't really love the spatial metaphor as a way to think about what's going on. But if you thought it used the spatial metaphor, well, you know, really what we're talking about is, well, there's a, the cutting line is still, is maybe further to the right than we'd like it to be. But it's still the case that it defines a lot of the differences. And more importantly, that the, the cutting line is wasn't so present. There wasn't that much of a discrimination on the basis of racial politics between the parties earlier and that as that became more important to what it means to be um, a liberal, then it became more important to what it means to be a Democrat. I think those things are still true, even if what most Democrats advocate for is a very watered down version of the policies that um, would actually make differences. And that's probably true. Not, I mean, it is true, not only just of, of racial questions, but also of economic differences, economic policies, intervention in the, in the economy, um, other moral politics to, uh, issues that aren't necessarily revolving around race, but uh, about gender and sexuality and religion. Uh, like most of those things, you know, the, the Liberal Party, the Democratic Party, the left, all are on the same end of those, but um, they don't generally go as far as a lot of people would like. And of course, there are plenty of conservatives who would tell the same story about the Republican Party. Much of the criticism of that came from the Tea Party was about exactly this, that the Republican Party of 
of George W. Bush was far too compromising, which I don't think um, a lot of liberals thought was true, but a lot of conservatives and Republicans did think was true. And that's, you know, they they found the same, like, oh, the Republican Party is really just a liberal uh, party. So I think there's some uh, degree of just sort of interpretation that is, um, that, that is grounding these very legitimate criticisms. It's a real legitimate question about what is the right interpretation. Um, but I'm mostly, at least at this, in the in the book, and as I'm thinking about sort of divisions, thinking more about which side are you on and not how far do you go. Okay, interesting. So I'm going to ask another another question before handing it back off to James. And this one, I think, actually builds kind of nicely off where you left that answer, which is about asymmetry between the parties. So you've been a pretty vocal critic of the party asymmetry thesis. And if I recall correctly, one of your arguments was that the way Democrats try to represent groups, which is the sort of uh, Grossman and Hopkins thesis, that Democrats are a party of groups, your argument has been that that's in, flat, in fact reflective of their ideology which is to sort of pursue equality for underrepresented groups. Um, and that alternately, you've also kind of argued Republicans' ideological statements and commitments are in response to the groups that they represent, for example, um, evangelicals. But asymmetry has been a big topic of discussion in kind of a different way. And our mutual friend and uh, friend of the podcast, Matt Glassman, had a really interesting tweet where he essentially said, you know, whatever conversation we might be having about party asymmetry, the asymmetry across the two parties about how they consolidate their power is really important. So I'm wondering if there are ways you see the two parties as, as functioning asymmetrically, especially maybe ways that have emerged in the last six years or so since that book came out. Um, or do you see this happening mostly at the elite level, at the, in the mass electorate, or just manifestations of your original critique. Sure. Yeah. No, I, so I mean, I'm I'm not. I'm definitely not opposed to the idea that the parties could be asymmet asymmetric in lots of different ways, um, including possibly if we are talking about polarization, and we you know, there's a lot of different things that polarization could mean, but it could be a very well be an asymmetric thing. You could also imagine that on particular issues, um, the issue really animates one side and it splits the other side. In fact, I talk a lot about that in the book because that's a possibility. That's asymmetric in some way. But one thing I don't think is very useful is the idea that the parties are so asymmetric that they're fundamentally different animals and that um, the Democratic Party is just a coalition of different interests that is not united in any way by any kind of ideology, or that the Republican Party is um, a coherent ideological organ that speaks of what it means to be conservative only and is not um, also beset by internal cleavages and conflicts but about, about the groups that define what it means to be conservative. Um, and the reason I think that's not very helpful is that it's really hard then to talk about how either of those parties might change and move in new directions. So for instance, the um, Republican Party, I'm sorry, the Democratic Party right now has a more ideologically coherent and purist wing, and then a more sort of compromising moderate wing. And it's, you know, includes both people who I think have sincere policy preferences that are not as extreme. They just would like to not do as much. And then others who are like, oh, it doesn't matter. I'd like to, I want to win elections. And so I'm, I'm not going to go as far as I might otherwise want to. But that group on the one hand, and then the people who really strongly have sort of ideological force are not unlike the division between the sort of stronger Tea Party elements in the um, Republican Party, and then now the more Trumpian elements within the Republican Party, and then the other parts that are more we're more interested in. Let's try to win elections, and let's try to you know represent and be responsive to the electorate. What's different is the relative balance of those 
forces and who's winning. But if you say they're just completely different animals to begin with, then it's hard to talk about how that could change or how there might be a condition under which the more ideologically pure progressive group in the, um, in the Democratic Party could win in the future, or how the less ideologically coherent uh, element of the less ideologically purist element of the Republican Party might regain some influence, or for that matter, how the more culture war oriented parts of the Republican Party can sometimes be at odds with the business oriented parts of the Republican Party. And that often happens. And um, that tension happens precisely because those are two groups that are both in the Republican Party and they are united by an ideology that says, oh, those interests should be the same and they should they can get along with each other. Um, but both the groups and the ideology are present. And I think if you if you try to um, imagine that only one really matters, then you lose that advantage. So my view on like the existing sort of asymmetry uh, literature up to that, including the Grossman Hopkins book, which I think is really great in a lot of ways, but then it goes just like extra thing or just the version, the cartoon version that we have is they are two different animals. And I think as I say, not helpful. Since then, more recently, I think we've seen a lot of, uh, of evidence that the Republican coalition and particularly the ideology of conservatives that anchors it, is really malleable. And certainly it's hard to see the Trumpian agenda as being you know, drawn out of a, any kind of extension of just what conservatism is, even though there's a lot of overlap because there's a, a push to, as your question sort of notes, uh, some uh, anti-democratic and you know, authoritarian um, strategies that you see that I think most of the core conservative thinkers of a generation ago would have, I mean, I'm not saying that they were the you know, paragons of democracy, but they would not have wanted to do those kinds of things. They wouldn't have thought it was necessary because they think, hey, we represent you know, this tradition, this, this democratic tradition that we have. Republicans have now embraced this, uh, this other way of thinking about, um, about democracy almost. And I think there is where, to think about modern asymmetry, there's where you really want to um, think about how things are different between the two parties. Um, I think that the Republican Party has a view that is increasingly like a sort of populist sense that they and the people that they represent are the real America, and that the only reason that they would lose elections is because a lot of people who are not part of the real America are voting and are participating and are cheating. And so you need to, to maybe even surrender some of your democratic rights to make it possible for you to continue to win. And that is not a strategy that you see anywhere from Democrats, even Democrats who are like, we need to get dirty and fight as, just as dirty as the Republicans and do just as much, which by the way, of course, what Republicans say about why they're fighting dirty is because they're responding to the Democrats. We don't see that kind of, well, and I guess maybe we need to give up on democracy, um, at least not spoken out loud. And that is really, uh, really asymmetric. One way to track that back to the first point about the different ways in which the Democrats and Republicans ideologies themselves um, are present is to say that part of the Republican ideology all along and the Democratic, the conservative ideology all along has been about how a numerical minority that has otherwise larger political uh, influence can bring in and expand its constituents to include people who maybe don't 
benefit from some of the policies that say, um, you know, a free market conservatism would give you and say, okay, well, we also care about these other traditional things that will protect you as well. And that's why we're all united in this sense. And that's a strategy that is sensible if what you want to do is reach out and include just a handful more people to the other otherwise effective, well-organized core. And Democrats have to scramble to organize and put together all of their pieces. And that's their ideology because it's there, but they have to, in order to get close to that same majority, put together this more diverse coalition. And if that's the case, then that's just a, you know, a, a different, stra- different, that's a difference in strategies that match the kinds of groups that they have. And now the democracy thing is also just a difference in strategies that map to the types of groups that they have. That makes sense. Yeah, I have a sort of mid-length piece that I've been working on um, that essentially argues, try to sort of square the circle and say, you know, why is why has one party done all these kind of power consolidating moves and Democrats don't, which of course is a question I see on kind of like angry left online Twitter all the time. Um, and my argument is kind of, you know, it depends on who you're organizing power on behalf of. And once the Democrats assemble their whole coalition, there's so many power, you know, delicate power dances to be done. Um, I think that is mostly race. And I guess I will say that as I'm thinking about this, this is really helpful to me because I'm crystallizing thoughts on something I'm working on. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think your critiques of, Hoff, of Grossman and Hopkins are really interesting. I think their book is really great. But what I'm sort of thinking about is the fact that if one party is racially liberal, then that is going to intrinsically be asymmetrical, maybe not necessarily in the ways that they describe it. Like if race is a divide between the parties, then that is going to create asymmetries. This is a different thought than what I've typically have said about that book, which is that it, it reflects asymmetries that go that go back like a hundred years earlier than the book starts. So these these are the thoughts. These are the thoughts that I have now. Thank you, Hans. That, that was really that was like I said, this is very hopefully helpful for our listeners, but helpful for me for sure. Um all right, James, I'll I'll let you let you ask a question. Yeah, I agreed and it's very helpful, very illuminating. I you know we we talk a lot about ideologies. We constantly refer to ideologies and as as you point out, Hans, um in your excellent book as well, it's not entirely clear what they are, but yet we talk about them as these comprehensive things and that they overlap, which again, I know picking up on our last conversation and the last question, um, they, they don't necessarily overlap. Uh, but, you know, just to take a, you know, to look at this here, if we look at the George W. Bush administration, just to, you know, to take, you know, defend my fellow conservatives for a second, if the key thing is spending money, fiscal conservatism, George Bush spends more money than any other president since LBJ on non-defense, non-war, on-terror programs, Department of Agriculture, Science, Commerce, Education, go on down the road. If we talk about health care today, there is clearly the ascendancy in the Republican Party, regardless of what the rhetoric is, the ascendancy in the Republican Party is for a middle-class entitlement for health care. I mean, when was the last time you heard somebody in the Republican Party talk about Obamacare and repealing it? If we talk about immigration, in 2007, the party, much to its great chagrin and consternation, was unable to pass comprehensive immigration reform because activists said it was going to give them amnesty and you had a handful of people in government that were fighting it. And so I guess what this does is it brings me back to what we all know very well, this kind of tripartite structure, pig pie po. We're never going to forget it, right? 
parties in the government, parties in the electorate, party organizations, and that parties are very complex entities. They have different members and they confront different problems and they solve different problems for those members. But we increasingly talk about parties, again, as if they're just one kind of monolithically conservative or liberal without any kind of real sense of what that means. And I think this is a result of the kind of nominate stuff out there. And it's also a result of the industrial organization crowd and the game theory crowd. And after all, our job is to make sense of politics and help people to understand it. And so it's easier for us to do so if we can like boil it all down to these nice, simple boxes. Right. Um, and, you know, I guess what I'm getting at here and to pick up on this last inter exchange with you and Julia is that if our parties are, you know, for instance, like on the racial issue, the parties themselves may talk about it a lot, but it doesn't seem to me that they're doing that much. And with, in, in picking up on Aldrich and picking up on, uh, you know, John Aldrich and his great work, uh, the parties, especially in government, one of the things that they do when they don't agree is they keep those issues away from the agenda, right? And we've seen some high profile efforts to try to, you know, to legislate in certain places on both the left and the right or Republicans and Democrats in recent years. But even those, I think, were overstating the significance um, of the actual legislation. And they also failed. And so I guess my question is, if we take this kind of functional analysis as party as tools for individuals, not as kind of these monolithic things, as parties as tools for individuals who are trying to participate in politics successfully and to achieve their goals, how do they differ for the electorate and for the members and say the elite level in Congress or in the government? And what problems are parties actually solving right now for, for the members? I mean, yeah, they may get them reelected, uh, but you know, it's not like you're getting a lot of policy outcomes from all of this. And even if you get in, sometimes being kind of a staunch partisan can be a bad thing in a, in a re-election. And the very last thing I'll say is, look, it doesn't make any difference to me right now if I'm looking at the Senate from like 35,000 feet and I'm just looking at the behavior of the individuals, right? Roger Wicker and, you know, Chris Murphy are literally behaving the exact same way. They're behaving the exact same way when a Democrat is president. They're behaving the exact same way when a Republican is president. They're behaving the exact same way, regardless of who is in the majority. But yet our talk about parties emphasizes all these immense differences and we overlook, or at least we don't see the fact that they're literally operating inside of government the exact same way. And then we're like, why is nothing happening? I mean, what am I missing here? Help me out. I mean, I, I'm clearly missing something. Well, I think part of it is actually the first part of your question maybe like speaks a little bit to the to the latter part, which is, you know, parties do have their manifestations in different places. And so there is party in the electorate, which is different than party in government, which is different than party as an organization. And yet, like they are still the same party, right? And they are trying to connect to them. So the way that I always like to think about this is that you've got party in the government, which is, you know, partisans trying to build coalitions to either pass legislation or prevent legislation from passing or anyway, build a a record that is that is good for them uh, for re-election, and then you know they're doing that what they're doing there. But really, it's very helpful for them to get re-elected so they can keep doing it, um, either just because they want the job or because they want to be more successful. So then they also have to do the same mobilization, organization, coordination in the electorate, and 
they can go back and forth between those things, but it sure would be useful and nice to have some sort of continuity that was trying to coordinate both across levels and also over time. And the party as an organization is at least part something that does a little bit of that. It's a place where people who are not currently active in government or currently running for office can still make decisions that will affect those later things. And there is a team, right? There is a Democratic team that wants the Democrats to win, and there's a Republican team that wants the Republicans to win. And um, they're organization at the electorate level shapes the kinds of things that people are going to do in government um, that otherwise seem to be really similar. So I think a lot of, you know, in, because we have this individual level election where you are, are elected from your own constituency, you can diverge from what the rest of the party is doing. So, you know, Joe Manchin has doing the thing that makes him so that he will get reelected. At least that's his, his how he views it. And that's what makes sense for that district for a Democrat there. But they're aggregated all the way up. There's going to still be some effort to kind of coordinate and steer all of that. I think that our institutions right now are not very good at enabling parties to do that job at any of the levels, at organizing voters. You're choosing between these two. You're not choosing between one or another person. Ultimately, you're choosing, even if you're voting only in West Virginia, between which coalitions are going to run the chamber. So you should be thinking about certain things in terms of parties. And some people do that sort of the sort of polarization of at the um, you know sort of identity level that that someone like Lillian Mason would talk about. So there's some of that, but not it's not everywhere. And there's other stuff that matters uh, too. And anyway, then there's an attempt to try to get away from oh well, it's the parties are the problem, so people aren't thinking in terms of uh, of that. And then you you know get to the party in the in in the government side, and the party in government ought to just say, okay, well we can organize to pass this. But then they have for the end, they're made up of these people who just want to get reelected, and they have to make compromises with their agenda so that Joe Manchin can do what he wants. And it's not just letting him do that, but the way the institutions are set up, but he can do that. And so. Um, it's harder for the party to have any exercise, any kind of power there uh, as well. And then the parties as organizations have very little influence over anything. Um, you know, they can tinker on the margins with how the nomination process for president works or with who is or is not you know, uh, sanctioned by some uh, local group that wants to say, well, we were mad at, at um, at cinema or something, but they can't do much more about the organizing. So in all these places, because parties are weak, they're also just slipping, you know, against their curve, what should be uh, working in concert. They slip uh, there and accomplish the narrower thing that they can accomplish in their own uh, domain, I think. That's great. I'm going to play a clip of you saying parties are weak over and over to our, our dear mutual friend, Jonathan Bernstein, uh, who likes to argue with me on that point. So I want to close it up by just asking, that's actually a great transition to asking about what we see coming um, in 2024. So to some extent, I just want to engage you on the kind of parlor game of this question of, you know, what's, what's going to happen on the Republican side. I think there's a lot of talk in our discipline that Trump seems really inevitable. He seems stronger than any other uh, Republican. I think there's also some questions. Obviously, the question of whether Biden is going to run again is like a whole separate question. And then what will be the dynamics in the Democratic Party if he doesn't, if you have any comments on that. So I, I'm curious, not just kind of like who you think are the players in 2024, but kind of what do you think are the, the dynamics of presidential nomination going into 2024? And then we'll wrap it up. Sure. Well, so on, on the Republican side, which is the place where we think most uh, is probably most interesting. I mean, I think to step back. So the argument we make in the the party decides is that party institutions that 
our present for nominating presidents are 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 weak, right? They are not they are not designed to help the party as a uh, as a coalition, as a you know organized collection of people who are trying to make a collective decision on behalf of what the party wants. The 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 sequential state by state delegate selection primaries um, are not good for this. They're not. They're, they're a weak institution and that enables individuals to do what they want. That was the consensus um, of the literature from, you know, Nelson Polsby up until, you know, as we were we were writing. And our argument was, well, yeah, the, so the institutions are, are weak and they don't make it easy for parties to, to do what they want to do. But parties know this, don't like that and try like crazy to do something to shape who wins. And they may not get who they would have gotten in the counterfactual in which the system worked like it did, you know, before McGovern Fraser, but they um, they could do something. They can, inf- they can influence and encourage support for the candidates that they like, and they can discourage and sort of push out candidates that they don't like. So two things that happened um, with that. One, which we talk about in the, the piece we have in, in PS, is that you know, a whole host of changes to the institution have made the invisible primary less invisible. And so it's easier for individual candidates to challenge the authority of the party. But also in the Republican Party, one of those people who challenged the authority of the Republican Party is now the like loudest voice. And so then the tools that we thought were there before that were like, well, let's, you know, everybody seems to think that Hillary Clinton is the best choice. And uh, it's sort of too late to, to challenge that conventional wisdom. So I'm not going to, or, you know, everyone thinks the same for George W. Bush or for Al Gore or for whoever. And so we're, you know, it's going to be really hard to challenge them. And as we go into new states, uh, it's going to be an uphill battle for anybody who isn't that individual, that, that person who's been anointed by, by the party. But now the Republican Party has Donald Trump, who has been not anointed by the party in the same way, but still he's there. He's got that sort of central level of constant support and attention that we think the parties were able to give to other candidates in the past. Now, that doesn't mean that they always will win. Um, they didn't always win in the era that we covered in the book. And it could be that um, the Trump with that advantage doesn't win now. I think a lot depends on whether Trump um, tries and, and succeeds in sort of coalescing the support that he has at rallies now into support for him running again, or he just keeps having fun at rallies and that's, that's it. And then how well other candidates who could also appeal to some of those same voters that, that like Trump might, uh, might break that apart. And then you still have this very messy institution that's in place um, of the sequential primaries. And so if Trump's support is weak and hollow, the way that say some of the candidates in, um, in some of the past uh, races, like sort of, you know, nobody was really a clear uh, central person in 1988, in the Democratic Party or uh, in 2016, the Republican Party, it's not sort of like what little support he has is kind of hollow and starts to crumble. Um, then someone else could step in and the party might not whoosh in to, to bail out Trump the way that um, I think they did whoosh in to say bail out Bill Clinton after his initial stumbles in 92. So I don't know. I don't like what the who's going to be who's going to matter whether or not it's going to be Trump, but it's going to be Trump. And then who else is there? And I think a a, a DeSantis or other Trump like figure is the other possible player on that. And then there's po- quite possibly a let's return to normal kind of Republican 
but I'm not sure that person's going to have a lot of traction even without Trump in the field. So I think it's, I'm not sure, but I'm not sure who that, the fact that I can't even think of who it might be is um, not a good sign for whoever does pick up that mantle. Yeah, I think that's that's really accurate. And I, I think my sense of the the non-Trump part of the field is that that person isn't going to win, but that there may be somebody who can sort of consolidate that that wing of the party and make um, make it difficult for whoever does win. And that the, the wing of the party to really keep an eye on is the sort of people trying to out-Trump Trump. Um, but I do think what, what the party elites think about Trump himself and what they're willing to do, I think, are are kind of critical. And I think some of the signs that we've seen there sort of suggest that there's some skepticism of Trump himself among the sort of we want to win style party elites, not so much in the party base, which seems still very enthusiastic about Trump and and Trumpism. So I guess um, I share your sort of like, I think, cautious approach to thinking about the role that, that Trump will play. And yeah, I mean, none of us, none of us know what will happen. Uh, so I think we can leave it there. Thank you so much, Hans Noll, for joining us on Politics in Question. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.